Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the founder of Four Nations Consulting, Guillermo Perez. Guillermo, welcome to the show. Hi Gunnar, it's a pleasure and thanks for having me on. Guillermo, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, please tell us about your earliest football memory. Well, I've been always a football fan. I followed my hometown club, FC Barcelona, since I was little. And I played football at school uh, with friends. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, been uh, it and until I founded uh, the company three years ago. And tell us more about Four Nations. Um, obviously, mutual friend of various put us in touch, Sean Bemis. Sean being a consultant working for you at the moment. But tell us a bit more about Four Nations Consulting, how it was formed and what exactly it proposes to do. Yeah, well, I've been, I was been at, at the company uh, for uh, eight years. Uh, and at some point I decided it was uh, time for me uh, to start uh, pointing my careers towards something different. Uh, in this case, uh, trying to follow my passion. So I, I decided to take one year off. Uh, and during that year, trying to learn as much as I could from the technical side of uh, the football industry, trying to meet different individuals, potential clients, potential employers. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, during one of the masters uh, that I did, I met with uh, three other guys uh, from different backgrounds. And uh, with them, we decided to found a company. It was almost three years ago, uh, and in this case, it was uh, in the middle of the pandemic, so it was a little bit difficult to start uh, with. Uh, but at the end of the day, we managed to go through with it, and uh, we had three different uh, and clear objectives. Uh, first of all, build, building our brand and uh, uh, letting people know about uh, us, uh, especially our potential clients. Uh, at the same time, we needed to build our portfolio of services and making sure they were suitable for the needs of, of the clients. And the third one, uh, which I think was really, really important for us, was uh, creating a, a global network and being able to to, to be face-to-face -face with our clients. Uh, we are aware that a lot of European clubs, for example, they don't have uh, that much uh, need for some of the services because they have a lot of personnel in-house. Uh, so we wanted to uh, make sure that uh, we have the opportunities in other countries, uh, in, in Latin America, in Middle East, in Africa, and so on. And uh, at the same time, uh, we are aware, and uh, we started with that thought as well, that a lot of clubs uh, in Europe, they they are putting a lot of effort uh, on their international expansion uh, to grow both commercially and on the sporting side. So that was uh, key for us, uh, being able to structure uh, our global network with uh, different individuals and partners in different countries and trying also to speak the, their, uh, their language to be able to communicate uh, much easier. And a large part of the work you do, Guillermo, would be providing investment advisory services to these potential investors looking to put money mm -hmm. in football clubs. That being a prominent exactly. topic at the moment. I mean, what typically are the main objectives of investors entering the football industry? Well, I think it's it's a good question because usually uh, people think like, okay, I'm just going to buy a, a football club or you, they just see someone buying the, a football club, but uh, they don't know the reasons and they can vary from from a lot of, uh, of objectives. And uh, you can have uh, owners or new investors that want to, to buy a club because they have been fans of the club for a long time. Uh, they can have... Uh, 
ties with the community. Uh, they want to increase the network of contacts to meet uh, highly influential individuals. There are other cases, like I can remember with Mike Ashley in Newcastle, uh, with the advertising capacity for, uh, for his company's Sports Direct. You can have others that want to gain uh, positive PR, like uh, in the case of uh, some of the countries behind uh, Paris Saint-Germain or Manchester City. Uh, you have uh, those that want to maximize financial, game, financial gains uh, or even with the speculation of the future games, like uh, the case of, of Blackpool. Uh, Blackpool. I remember when they promoted to the first division, uh, they ended up uh, selling most of the players, cashing in and uh, just leaving the club. So. There are various objectives, and I think it's important to understand when analyzing why uh, there's this investment in behind a, a club, uh, the, the reasons. And would it be fair to say as well, Guillermo, that like football clubs are really, you know, there is an attract an innate attractiveness of football yes, clubs that's investing. Yeah, definitely. I think the the first and main uh, attractiveness between uh, the investment in a football club, I think, that is the the relatively stable cash flow, uh, especially regarding the ordinary revenues. Uh, if you see uh, match day revenues, if you see sponsorship, or uh, in the case of the TV rights, they are quite stable. Uh, there's also some interest, uh, for example, in uh, the possibility of maximizing the, the revenues related to the new stadiums. And that's why you see uh, big clubs trying to transform and refurbish their old stadiums so they can increase not only the capacity, but also the amount of VIP areas that they offer to people that want to attend to the games, which at the end of the day, it's going to bring much more revenue. Uh, there's also the potential uh, of maximizing and uh, monetizing the, the fan engagement uh, the clubs. It's something that uh, they've been following uh, for a long time and some of the clubs are partially achieving, but it's uh, there's a long uh, way to go, but that would create a lot of uh, future revenues. And uh, there are other clubs as well that uh, they have this uh, possibility of uh, continuously producing talent. And that's also quite attractive because at the end of the day, it's going to generate uh, uh, extraordinary revenues that uh, are going, going to help uh, to increase the value of the club, especially for those that uh, after two, three, four years, they want to end up selling the, the asset uh, for a much larger amount that they invested uh, from the beginning. And one thing that I wanted to bring up, which is of obvious interest to yourself and many listening to the show, is... The, you know, we've seen a big trend in recent years, Guillermo, of U.S. investors coming into European football clubs. I mean, it was always the case 10, 15 years ago, but it has never been as prominent, I don't think, in these last few years. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and in this case, I think, uh, first of all, uh, the main reason uh, is because the assets are much cheaper. Uh, there was a recent uh, article from, from Sportico showing the comparison between the, the cost of the assets in the and the NFL and the MLB, uh, MLS and NBA. And if you remove the top six uh, clubs in the Premier League, the rest of the clubs were uh, valued uh, uh, way below uh, those in the US. So I think the fact that they don't have to spend that much money, uh, it's something that might be quite appealing for uh, US investors. And at the same time, I think, uh, also, the, the possibility uh, of uh, having this thrill of uh, playing in Europe or even having the risk of uh, relegating or uh, having the chance of, of promoting some of the clubs to, to a first division, I think it's, it's something that might be quite appealing because 
on the US leagues uh, during the regular season, uh, it's difficult to have uh, that uh, week-to-week excitement. And uh, I think there's a third reason, probably, uh, which is the absence, or at least the, the, the they are not hindered hindered in terms of uh, being uh, regulated to to go to the market. You've uh, seen the example now with Chelsea, the new owners. They have been splashing cash all around, uh, buying big names. And I think so. it's something that is quite uh, appealing for them uh, because uh, in the US you have uh, to be uh, buying the, the players under certain regulations with the designated players, with the hometown, uh, homegrown players and so on. So I think that's uh, something that might be quite appealing uh, because you have freedom to operate. And if you have the cash, uh, you can put it out there and, and get the, the star players that they want. Out of curiosity, before proceeding with any investments, of course, Guillermo, there's an extensive due diligence process to take out um to take place. There's a market mapping analysis there as well. What do both look like? I think it's one of the phases that's uh, really, really important for us. Uh, and we put a lot of focus when we try to help investors because uh, it's really important to identify clubs uh, that match with the objective. So if you want to bring your own players, uh, you need to select a club that at the end of the day, it's not going to put, uh, or a league that it's not going to put restrictions on the amount of foreign players that you can bring. If you want to play uh, in uh, European competitions fast, uh, you need to select a league that uh, allows you to do that. Or if you want to sell the club uh, after three, four years, I think uh, you will find some assets that uh, where you can achieve that uh, in easier than other cases. Like uh, if you go to the Premier League, it's going to be much, much, much more difficult. But if you go to France or if you go to minor leagues like Croatia or Denmark, maybe you have uh, more chances to do so, especially after the the creation of, of the Conference League. So I think those objectives need to be clarified. Uh, you need to be aware of uh, how much money that you, you want to put uh, in, uh, in the club because at some point... Uh, 5 million euros in one league uh, gets you to, to be in first division and in other leagues uh, you can even not make it to the to the second division. So that's really important. Uh, also, uh, being aware of, uh, of the percentage that you want to acquire in the new club uh, because uh, maybe in the Premier League uh, low percentage can allow you still to uh, participate from the decision making of uh, of the club, especially regarding transfers. Uh, well, if you do it in a minor league, yeah, you don't have any power on saying anything about uh, how to run the club. So, those kind of things need to be analyzed, and, uh, and that's uh, what we include in our uh, market uh, mapping process to be able to select which are the best uh, assets that match with uh, with the objectives of the owners, and also highlighting if there are potential barriers like ownership restrictions, player resistance on GB, financial fair play regulations, local taxations, and so on. Uh, so at the, end, at the end of the day, this is the first project that uh, that we execute. Uh, and after that, uh, we proceed with the due diligence. And in this case, uh, usually the due diligence is seen some, as something which is uh, only financially related. Uh, but for us, uh, it means uh, much more. It means involving also the commercial and sporting part of the club. And uh, when you analyze the finances or the revenues, uh, if you see that the, the club uh, relies uh, every year on uh, the possibility of selling players uh, you need to see if there are more players left in the squad to sell in the upcoming years otherwise you'll be 
uh, left with uh, no players to to sell, and then you will have uh, losses uh, in the upcoming years. So that's important. You need to see, for example, if uh, you are creating or you are generating a lot of revenues on the on the sponsorship side. How long are those sponsorship contracts? Or if uh, your match day revenues are uh, successful, uh, you need to see if you can grow them more based on the occupation of the stadium or the average ticket uh, price compared to other clubs in the league. So. For us, it's it's much more than just focusing on the on the financial statements and analyzing if uh, if there's debt. And uh, if you want to go ahead with uh, with an investment and buy the club and put the money to buy it, uh, what's going to happen also on the sporting side? You need to uh, reinforce the the squad, so we need to analyze first a little bit uh, the performance and the players available, or even if you have to put more money to develop the the, the youth academy. And one huge interest of mine recently has been multi-club ownership schemes, Guillermo, MCOs. And there seems yeah. to be quite a dearth, like a vacuum. There doesn't seem to be all that encom- wholly encompassing information out there as to what they are, how they operate. Obviously, we know that they, ge- they can generate economies of scale, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But typically, what would be the advantages and disadvantages of running one of these MCOs? Well... I usually try to uh, divide in three different categories when I analyze the, the MCOs. Uh, first of all, those uh, investment funds uh, that try to have a diverse portfolio of, of assets and then they invest uh, in uh, in clubs and different leagues uh, just to get uh, yeah a diverse portfolio. So if one of them uh, doesn't work and maybe it relegates, maybe the other one uh, it does the opposite and it's successful. And then whenever they sell, they compensate the losses from one with the profit of the other one. Uh, then you have uh, bigger uh, MCOs uh, generated by a main uh, core club, like the case of, of Manchester City. And then the third one category for me would be those uh, those uh, private uh, owners uh, that at the end of the day end up buying another club, like for example with uh, Tony Bulum in, in Brighton and Union uh, Saint-Gilloise in Belgium, because uh, it allows you to uh, invest in academy development in another country and uh, also get the possibility of loaning some some of the players there. So in this case, uh, with regards to the advantages, okay, you can have a larger commercial reach for the sponsor. You can have the optimization of uh, resources and the scouting networks. You can, of course, get players uh, at a cheaper cost. Uh, if you have the, the satellite clubs within your network, you can use them to loan the players, as I was uh, mentioning before with uh, Union Sajidwa and, and Brighton. Uh, and in some cases, you can even partially bypass uh, financial free play, which uh, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a big concern for some of the clubs. But of course, you have your your risk, uh, the, the different cultural environments. Uh, there's the risk of relegating some of the clubs, like like it happened with uh, Nancy and, and Barnsley in uh, in the past. Uh, and there's something really important, which is the potential backlash uh, from the supporters. Uh, within the recent example of uh, Nac Breda and Manchester City, or for example with uh, Lorient, that was uh, recently acquired by Bill Foley from from Bournemouth. The first decision he took was to bring uh, Dango Watara from Loria to Bournemouth. I'm not sure if uh, the fans would be really happy about that, that move. Probably Bournemouth fans, yes, but Lorient fans, I'm not that sure. And, you know, speaking about MCO, is probably the most famous of them all, City Football Group. Man City, you're really an interesting case because there's the productivity element. 
So you have players that they can ascertain from all these different other clubs in their portfolio. But then they look at their own doorstep at Eastlands outside the Etihad and they've quite the productive youth academy, don't they, Guillermo? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a really interesting case. Uh, Manchester City, uh, they have managed to grow from a club that was uh, fighting uh, with the bottom clubs of the league, uh, trying to avoid relegation, to become a fantastic and well-run club, uh, both on and off the pitch. Uh, probably one of the top five clubs uh, right now. And I think the, the executives uh, from the club have uh, managed to... to to build a global brand and I think from a commercial perspective it was really smart as well the the first decisions they took about uh, investing in clubs in the US India and, and China because I think they are one of the most uh, uh, like the markets of, of the future also for uh, for football but in this case uh, I would also really like to get to, to know maybe one time I have the chance to to be with uh, Manchester City executives to to know exactly if the success of Manchester City uh, off the pitch has been because of the global network they have or because of the the success on the pitch of uh, of their uh, core team. So, in this case, what we did uh, to analyze the, the sporting impact and the productivity, as as you were asking, was an analysis on. On the on the way they have been operating with their uh, with their satellite clubs. So first of all, uh, we analyzed uh, the players that were bought and then loaned to uh, one of the satellite clubs. And I think only Arjen Muric uh, managed to come back to Manchester City and, and play some some minutes at the club. Which yeah, it's not that much. And if you compare also the the value of uh, of yeah, the acquisition value of the player and the the, the value of the player when they uh, when they sold, uh, there was a difference that if you add up all, all the players that uh, you included in that list was around 5.5 5 million euros, which, uh, yeah, it's not that much. Uh, then the second exercise we did was uh, to compare, okay, those players that they bought from one of their satellite clubs, uh, in this case, trying to leverage from the the... The, the fact of having this MCO network and uh, getting to buy players uh, for a cheaper amount. Uh, you can have the likes of uh, Harrison, Jack Harrison playing at Leeds United uh, right now. You have Byron Moore, you have uh, Pedro Porro that uh, recently signed for uh, for Tottenham. And uh, yeah, none of them managed to play for the first team of Manchester City. And at the end of the day, if you get to analyze also the price of uh, the cost of acquisition and uh, the cost of uh, the transfer fee that they got from those players, adding up all of them, they only managed to get around the uh, positive transfer balance of uh, 15 million, which, yeah, it's it's uh, okay, but uh, it's not that much. Uh, if you compare it with the third uh, uh, value that we estimated, which is basically the, the production of talent uh, from their own academy, uh, and in this case, you can see more examples of players that made it to the first level and uh, managed to play for Manchester City's uh, first team. You have uh, Phil Foden, you have uh, Ihe Anacho that that uh, ended up leaving to, to Leicester City. You have Eric Garcia now at Barcelona. Uh, but in, in this case, uh, aside from the players that made it to the first team, uh, you have a lot of cases uh, that uh, at the end of the day ended up uh, going out of the club. And if you add uh, the numbers, uh, I think they managed to reach a positive transfer balance of 100 million, which is much, much more than if you compare it to the money that they got from from having this um, MCO network. So for me, I think it's a 
it's a great uh, business case, uh, but uh, from a sporting perspective, I don't think they have benefited that much from having the, the, the presence of the satellite clubs. And you spoke briefly about Brighton and their relationship with Union Galise in Belgium. You know, mm-hmm. for me, that seems it is really a soft alternative to being an MCO, these partnership agreements with foreign clubs. Can you mm-hmm. can you give us a little bit more of a lens into those game on how those partnership agreements actually work out? Yeah, it is actually something that we've been pitching to a lot of clubs because we have a great network established in, in South America, in Colombia, Venezuela, Uruguay. And uh, for us, it's important that they understand that uh, sometimes it's not just about having the, the club within your network and owning the club. Because uh, if you reach a partnership agreement, uh, of course, that you really activate it because at the end of the day, there are a lot of clubs that they sign partnership agreements and they just promote the news on social media and there's a big buzz around it, but nothing happens after that. But if you truly activate the partnership and you get uh, to know what's going on in uh, in the club and you use part of the money that uh, was probably going to be invested for owning the club and you use it for putting, for creating a, a better academy and improving the facilities of the club and improving the, the scouting network, uh, that's going to make the, the club uh, take a, a leap. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, clubs in, in those countries that uh, if you remove the top two, which are, which are the ones that usually win the titles, uh, just with a bit of investment, they can uh, make it to the, to the next level. So that's going to help uh, to scout better and to get uh, more players and just to keep them within the club. So... Uh, the parent uh, club, let's say the one that's putting the investment in Europe, uh, it's going to have the opportunity of uh, getting players for a, for a cheaper uh, value uh, whenever they, they grow, if they decided to, to, to go for them. So I think it's, it's important that uh, they understand that it's not always about going into a club and changing all the philosophy and uh, changing the people working there because what you want to do at the end is just to get uh, the possibility of uh, expanding commercially, which uh, by having a partnership with a local club can help and also getting players uh, uh, for a much uh, cheaper value. So in this case, uh, yeah, it's good if you travel with your own staff and show how to implement your own methodology, but you don't need to change all the stuff uh, that's working already locally. So I think it's... Uh, Trying to go for a software alternative is something that uh, can be an option in the future and will also get you in a position that uh, you're not going to have to face the problems with the, with the supporters that, uh, yeah, they don't like the fact that you are just uh, trying to, to acquire them and uh, change uh, the club completely. And a more pressing concern would be, well, the present of football today. We speak about sustainability, financial fair play. I mean, with what's gone into the Premier League in this transfer window and further affair in Europe, yeah. um, Guillermo, is it fair to say financial fair play could be dead? Or does do the rules itself need retailing and revisiting? It's a tough question. I think it's a, it's a really important tool and uh, it's a really important mechanism to to control the, the exorbitant expenditure of clubs uh, and in some cases even the possibility of them going into uh, administration. At the same time, it's a way of having a fair competition uh, and, and trying to regulate the entrance of uh, massive foreign capitals or even countries to back up uh, 
the, the success of uh, some of the clouds, but it is true that it should be uh, improved and trying to get somehow a uniform regulation in uh, different countries because now each of the countries has uh, have its own regulation and I think it's difficult to to compete having that. I know UEFA is trying to to take a step further and uh, increase the, the control that they have over class, but I think there's still uh, a long way to go. Uh, yeah, you've seen it now with uh, with Chelsea trying to bypass it with uh, longer contracts on Mudrich and uh, Enzo Fernandez, uh, just to cope with uh, the fact that they were spending huge amounts of money on, on the transfer fees. And we see it too in Spain. I mean, there's been calls to have a far more restrictive regulation regarding FFP, but a club closer to home and closer to your heart, Guillermo. In fact, you know, FC Barcelona, the case which has kind of blown everyone's mind open in the past 18 months or so has been the impact of Barcelona and the financial levers on the system of Spanish mm-hmm. football in Europe indeed. I mean, problems that are inherent within the club, the reputational impact, the decisions taken. And I mean, for me, what I'm most concerned about is the future risk of these financial levers implemented because there don't seem to be enough thought or consideration gone into this, am I wrong? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that uh, Spain has a much more restrictive regulation. Uh, And in this case, if you ask, is it good or bad? I think uh, it depends. Uh, On the one hand, uh, there's a problem because the same clubs that uh, compete under a certain regulation in Spain, when they go to Europe and they compete against other other rivals, they have less uh, possibilities to go to the market because the regulation uh, on the financial play is much more restrictive. Uh, but in this case, I think it's a, it's a good regulation and the fact that they can control the salaries and amortization based, uh, uh, paid based on uh, on revenues and the existence of debt, that they also regulate the, the length of the contract with a maximum of five years. Uh, they regulate the arrival of uh, new sponsors, not only uh, from the fact that uh, um, they have to have a, a reasonable value, but also uh, they need to present a, a commercial plan and they have uh, they need to have a, a reasoning behind, not just for the sake of bringing someone that's going to pay money through a sponsor, which at the end of the day, just try trying to bypass the, the regulation and uh, and also trying to put a limit to the amount of money that uh, as a new investor you can inject to the club to to pay those uh, salaries and, and amortization of the players so i think that uh, needs to be taken into account uh, the spanish league is doing a, a great uh, job with that but i think in the last uh, few weeks uh, maybe months uh, they there's been a f- kind of a fight behind the scenes between the, the big names of like Barcelona and Real Madrid and the, and La Liga itself trying to adjust uh, the regulation to forbid them to do of, of doing some stuff uh, just because of their participation in the Super League so it's been uh, a, a tough uh, question uh, but in the case of, of Barcelona as you were asking yeah definitely the, the one of the main things it uh, was that uh, there was a, a reputational impact on what happened uh, during last summer. Uh, I remember a tweet from Spartak Moscow saying like uh, a reaction like us when Barcelona tries to to buy Victor Moses uh, with imaginary money and uh, trying to pay in uh, you know uh, twenty five installments and that's that's uh, bad for the image of, of Barcelona and they were replies to that tweet and other people trying to complain about yeah, why Barcelona is uh, 
is uh, acquiring players uh, if they are uh, broken or they have uh, sold the club and so on. And it's it shows a little bit like how the industry goes and uh, the, the damage that uh, social media can cause in, in a topic like this. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a bit of lack of, uh, of knowledge on how it works, uh, the regulation, how the financial uh, the financial control over uh, the, the the club's uh, work in this case. And uh, Barcelona reached the point where they had uh, a debt of 1.3 billion euros, uh, which it's, it was huge, but they managed to control their short-term debt with uh, with a credit from Goldman Sachs, uh, which had an interest rate, I think, below 2%, which was fantastic. Uh, and then they had uh, also the problem of the necessary player impairment uh, because they had contracts of uh, Coutinho, of Neto, of Griezmann, that uh, the, 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 the value in the books was much higher than the real value. So they had to impair uh, those players uh, because that's uh, what uh, the regulation says. Uh, and they ended up with uh, with a loss uh, at the end of the year of minus, I think, four hundred eighty million, something like this. So they really were in a in a tough situation, and they got also the deferred salaries from the from the big star names uh, that uh, they postponed the payments of some of the their salaries because of the pandemic. Uh, they still had the exorbitant salary structure, so it was like a, a snowball coming uh, to the club, and that's why they decided to take that. Uh, that brought of the of the financial lever, so they ended up selling uh, first of all ten percent of their uh, future TV rights, only national TV rights, not uh, not European competitions, uh, before the the end of uh, the the financial year. Let's say it that way at the end of the season. Then they activated the second financial lever, selling uh, another fifteen percent uh, of uh, those uh, national TV rights, uh, and then they activated also the other two financial levers, trying to sell half of what they call uh, Barca Studios, which uh, includes basically Web three, NFTs, uh, blockchain, etc. So. At the end, they ended up with uh, a total amount of uh, around 167 million euros. Uh, but when they went to the transfer window, they only spent like 160 million on players. So there was this contradiction about, uh, okay, they are spending a lot of money, uh, but uh, but yeah, they have also uh, got a lot of money. And partially that money was to, to, to solve the existing debt and also to balance all the problems that I was mentioning at the beginning. So it was a, a difficult situation. And uh, in this case, there's there's a lot of uh, people uh, questioning, okay, yeah, you managed to solve the short-term situation with uh, with the financial level, but uh, what's going to happen in the future, right? Uh, which is the risk uh, because you are you are losing future revenues uh, with, uh, with the TV rights. So in this case, it is true. Uh, but if you calculate uh, which is the percentage that they are losing over the total revenue, I think it was like 5% only around 40 million every year which yeah it has a, it has an impact but it's it's not that that relevant uh, the main problem comes if uh, they cannot restructure the, the player salaries and the amortization they've been paying so it's not i think it's not that much about the revenues that they can get in the future of course they need to improve that but it's a matter of controlling the the expenses more than the, the revenues and uh, at the same time they have the the stadium renovation right now they need to re refurbish the the stadium and it's gonna uh, 
uh, imply a huge investment around uh, 1 billion euros and uh, and yeah that needs to to be added into the mix uh, and uh, use that in order to to estimate which is going to be to be the risk uh, and in the case of of the sale of the other two financial levers with regards to to Barca Studios in my opinion i don't think it's that risky because uh, yeah okay tv rights are pretty stable but in the case of the of the web3 blockchain nfts and uh, other digital assets uh, they are pretty volatile and quite uncertain and it's also a business that barcelona hadn't been exploited uh, until now so i think yeah you're getting cash upfront for something that uh, yeah it might uh, come to fruition in the future and grow but uh, it's not that there's certain so i think it's a smart move from from the club to do to do so Guillermo, I mean, as we begin to wrap up this podcast, one which I've thoroughly enjoyed and gotten unbelievable insight into partnership agreements with clubs, MCOs, FFP, amongst other things. I mean, for someone like yourself who's took that leap of faith, leaving the corporate world to set up your dream gig at your dream company, I mean, what would be the one piece of advice you'd have for those wishing to thread a similar path in the football industry? Well, it's it's a good question. I'd say... Uh... But to someone that wants to enter the industry, be persistent. Try to increase the networking as much as uh, you can. Uh, and if you have the chance to enroll in a, uh, in a master course in sports management or football business, it's a great opportunity not only to improve on the technical side, but also to get to meet people, get to meet potential clients, potential employers, and so on. And I think it's also really important to put uh, your thoughts out there, like to publish stuff, on LinkedIn, publish stuff on Twitter because it's something that uh, a lot of people is going to see. And and for us, we get a lot of requests from young uh, young guys that want to enter the industry and ask for a, a junior or a training position at the company. But it's really difficult to analyze uh, from the outside, which is the the capacity of of someone that's applying for a role. While if you see something that's been published out there you maybe see okay this guy it's uh, publishing interesting stuff or he can do this or that so i think it's a it's a great way to proceed and i encourage those that want to take uh, this step further in the football business to to start doing that Guillermo, thank you so much for joining the show today thanks connor it's been a real pleasure and uh, yeah looking forward to the next steps <laughs>